Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the impacts of media ownership on society, including legacy newspapers and social media platforms owned by billionaires, and the consolidation of our news and entertainment corporations through mega-mergers. Clips today are from Endeavor, Novara Media, Democracy Now!, Past Present, Adam Conover, and the readout with additional members-only clips from KERA's Think and What Next TBD. From the earliest days, freedom of the press was what defined America. Thomas Jefferson, who helped write the Declaration of Independence, believed a free media was essential for a free nation, saying, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. That was in 1787. Today, our newspapers seem to be fading in importance in a multimedia world that is largely owned and controlled by a handful of large media corporations. I think we're probably the most media-dominated society in the world. Jeff Cohn worked in major media. Now he's one of the industry's fiercest critics. Half a dozen corporations own and control most of the mainstream media in our country. So if you're looking at who rules America or who owns America, it's the same people that propagandize to America. The press and the outlets that report news or convey information are just a small slice of vast media empires producing entertainment products that also sell a way of life based on consumption. When you look at who's on the boards of media corporations, they're also on the boards of U.S. oil companies, and they're on the boards of uh, U.S. military contractors. So uh, trying to study who owns America, you're really also, these are the people that own the media. We don't have a state media, but in some ways it's very much like a state media. It's the corporate state. Thirty years ago, 50 companies dominated American media. Now it's down to six. With new global digital enterprises like Google, Facebook, and Twitter growing in importance worldwide, U.S.-based media became a transnational force. The U.S. media companies are themselves owned in large part by hedge funds, mutual funds, and finance companies. Barry James Dyke is an asset manager who has studied media ownership. The research which I've done is, is, is unequivocal, and I kind of stumbled into this, is that um, the, the media companies, the major media companies, i.e. the Disney's, the CBS's, the news corporations, all of them, this is all public documents, is that they're all owned, actually owned by mutual fund companies. The majority shareholders are owned by mutual fund companies. So, um, and also, they also get a lot of their revenue from these companies. So you're never going to see any consistent criticism about these fund companies. Are these companies investigated by the media? No, they're not. Are they responsible uh, to the public in some way? Are they accountable? Do the public really know what they're doing? The public really doesn't have a clue. They, they really don't know what they're doing. He has documented his findings with charts in his own book, The Pirates of Manhattan. Well, people are not going to be getting, not getting the truth. But there is a lot of coverage, especially of politics, that's often treated as a sporting event, with an emphasis on poll numbers and election results. Mary Boyle follows media coverage of elections for common cause. 
What about the role of the media? Is the media helping to strengthen our democracy, or do you think it's helping to divide us? Well, I, I think that's a great question. I, I think that, um, you know, there are a couple of things going on there. Obviously, you've got kind of cable channels that are, you know, in different camps, and they are not showing different points of view. You've got Fox News showing the right. You've got MSNBC showing the left. Um, and so with a setup like that, you you have Americans that are just kind of tuning in to the channel they want to listen to that, you know, kind of expresses their views. And, and you're not seeing kind of a mix of an opinion, a debate, anything like that. You've also got, you know, the shrinkage of, of the media. Um, you've got less coverage of, of what's going on. And I think this is particularly concerning uh, more around kind of state-based and, and local politics, um, where there's even less coverage. Of, of what's going on in politics. But even as the world is known for its diversity, American media is not. Editorially and ideologically, the power elite tends to reflect the views of the government and the people who shape its views. Dissenting politicians like Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. have a hard time getting their views heard. Who owns the media? how the media is translated, some of the moguls and the titans of media and industry are part of the problem. They shape a narrative for the American people, a narrative that ultimately leads millions of people to vote for candidates based upon the narrative that they shape, based upon the talking heads that they control. And those Americans tend to vote and tend to engage the system on the basis of that which they hear. Media is a significant part of this problem. Historian Eric Foner agrees. He says it's not just political bias at work, but what the media as a business feels it's forced to focus on to attract ratings and revenues. Somehow that idea of, of power uh, behind the people in office is not really in our media very much. It's not really in people's minds very much. They personalize politics. There are personalities combating each other, but they don't look at who's behind the scenes. Well, you're quite right that the media focuses on personalities, you know, and, and, and often the quirks of personality, Clinton's sexual escapades, or whether Obama was born in the United States or not, or Romney and his cars and whatever, you know, his not paying taxes and many other things. Those are not totally unimportant issues, but Maybe it's the nature of the media today in and of itself in that it, it, you know, it has to go for the quick news. Deep investigative reporting is not emphasized as much as perhaps it was in the past. And, um, you know, you got to sell papers and scandal sells papers, um, personality sells papers, celebrity sells papers. So, uh, you're right that the, you know, the, the larger nature of how the system operates tends not to get emphasized as much. It's not even understood by many people. Well, it's hard to understand. This is a very large country, over 300 million people, a very, very complicated economy and political system. So it's, it's difficult to understand exactly how things operate. But I think, but, but I think, you know, in a certain sense, the anti-government sentiment, which is rife in this country, which is generally associated with the right wing, is also a response to the feeling. It's an inchoate feeling. It's not an analytical feeling, but it's a feeling that government is aloof. It is not responsive. It does not really represent the people. It represents some very particular interests. And that sense is pretty widespread in this country. 
Media watch groups are also concerned about the lack of diversity within the media that makes it unrepresentative of the country it serves in racial, ethnic, and gender terms. The unwritten uh, credo of the New York Times is do not uh, alienate those for whom we depend uh, on, for money and access. Chris Hedges was an award-winning journalist for the New York Times, an American media star. And that means the uh, power elite uh, and the financiers who advertise. Uh, so, uh, but but it's it's expandable. I mean, you have you have at least in the positions that I was in the possibility uh, to do journalism. Not that there aren't you know restrictions or constrictions. There are, um, and, and not that they can't be punishing. Hedges' work is still very respected, but he believes that much of the press is ultimately a charade that covers up for power more than covers it, especially when reporting on elections. Because the political theater, I mean, the, the personal narrative of the candidate, it's all irrelevant. It, it, it's meaningless. Uh, and, and, and people, we, you know, we still play the game. Look, every uh, totalitarian country I covered had elections. They all play the charade. I mean, even East Germany did. Uh, and, uh, and that's the charade we play. And when we have a compliant corporate media that pretends that that charade is real. Um, so I think uh, the problem is that the illusion still remains so powerful. I, but people are, are changing, but the illusion is still so powerful that people confuse where power actually exists. Billionaires control the media, and it's undermining democracy. This is a great set of papers. I really, I've had such fun out there reading those papers. Anybody who thinks politics are boring would be have their mind changed by these papers. The Sun, Times, Mail, Metro and Telegraph are all owned by individuals who are incredibly wealthy and don't even pay taxes in the UK. There's Rupert Murdoch, who founded News Corp, whose UK arm, News UK, owns the Sun and Times stables. He lives in the US, where he's a citizen. There's Viscount Rothermere with the Mail, Mail on Sunday and Metro. He lives in France and is a non-dom. And there are the Barclay brothers with the Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph, not to mention the Spectator. Twins so cartoonishly bad, they have a secret lair in the Channel Islands. Rupert Murdoch leads the pack in wealth and he's worth around 20 billion The Barclay brothers, they're worth about 8 billion. While the fourth Viscount Rothermere is worth a comparatively measly 1 billion pounds. Rothermere, like his father before him, is based in France, with his business interests operating through a complex arrangement of offshore holdings and trusts. The Barclay brothers operate not just from their private island, but also Monaco. Like Rothermere, they too are non-doms, although they claim that's for health reasons. Ever thought about maybe just a gym membership? All of these individuals use their papers to ensure their vested interests as a wealthy elite are best served. For example, ensuring any potential government is committed not only to low taxes for the rich, but also isn't serious about tax avoidance. What is more, they lobby for privatisation and outsourcing to always be preferred, no matter the cost or the catalogue of failure. Why? Because both act as a machine to take money from ordinary people and give it to the rich. So every time you walk past the newspaper stand, be it in the supermarket or the petrol station, remember, it is this handful of billionaires whose opinions you are staring at. It's like that stupid racist Facebook post your uncle sometimes makes. But rather than ignoring it, you have to face it head on, everywhere, 
every day. All these media barons have backed the Tories in recent elections, not only through endorsements from their papers, but personally. Rothermere favoured Cameron and knew him, while Murdoch entered 10 Downing Street literally through the back door following the 2010 election when David Cameron wished to thank him for his support. Why did you enter the back door at number 10 uh, when you visited the Prime Minister following the last general election? Because I was asked to. More than just supporting the Tories, in the past, the Barclay brothers have even donated the money. Guys, it's not supposed to be that obvious. Now we're supposed to believe that these money bags don't interfere in what their papers really say. But they do. Harold Evans, a former editor at the Sunday Times, spoke of how he was often rebuked for, quote, not doing what he, Murdoch, wants in political terms, and how the two almost had fisticuffs after he published an article by the economist James Tobin, with which Murdoch disagreed. David Yellen, former editor at The Sun, made a similar admission, but he went further, saying most Murdoch editors wake up in the morning, switch on the radio, hear something that has happened and think, what would Rupert think about this? You look at the world through Rupert's eyes. Now, they don't own these papers out of the goodness of their hearts. These are ultra-wealthy, powerful individuals who own newspapers which often make no money because they want to influence political outcomes in a decisive way. This is one of the most insidious ways of undermining democratic politics. Recently, there was a confected outrage over a WhatsApp group, which included left-wing journalists and Labour Party press officers. The criticism was that these journalists were taking cues from Labour Party HQ and acting as nothing more than messengers. But while the left had a dozen people blinking at their smartphones, the Tories and the press barons had coordinated attack lines across the pages of the country's most widely read Sunday papers. There, they lambasted Labour's spending commitments, despite Labour having not actually published a manifesto, plucking a £1.2 trillion figure from thin air. Every single costing in this uh, dossier that we've published today is either come from Labour's own figures, most of them actually, over 50% of the costings are from Labour's own figures, the rest of them have either come from independent external sources, and in some cases, yes, we have had to work them out ourselves. Fact is, we know Labour is going to go on a reckless spendathon. Well, that's different this country from actually never putting a figure on it. Like. The Tories making up Labour's numbers and then attacking them. You'd think this was such a crazy story that it would be ignored, and it was. Unless you count the front pages of the Sun on Sunday, Mail on Sunday, and the Sunday Telegraph. A claim from the Conservative Party that Labour's general election policies will cost the country a total of £1.2 trillion. Sunday Telegraph, that uh, also leads with the same claim, saying the Conservatives will publish a dossier setting out calculations that they say show the true cost of a Labour government. Just days before that story landed, the editor and political editor of the Daily Mail was seen walking into Number 10 Downing Street. But... I'm sure that's just a coincidence. After all, there's no precedent for that kind of closeness between newspapers and a Tory Prime Minister. It's not like Margaret Thatcher, I don't know, literally wrote the headline on the front page of the Daily Mail after the 1987 general election. Uh, she did. She did? The BBC, a public service broadcaster, is meant to be a counterweight to this, offering an impartial perspective. But while it does control a large portion of broadcast news, it often just follows the agenda set by Fleet Street. At the Daily Mail, fury over Corbyn, ISIS chief gaffes. Labour's four-day week to cost the taxpayers £17 billion. The Sun's headline cheers Nigel over a picture of Boris Johnson um, holding up a pint. This is most obvious on programmes with a paper review. Ostensibly, these shows are just impartially reporting what the papers have said. 
when the papers they cover are overwhelmingly owned by billionaire Tory supporters, the message that gets through is the one set out by their newspapers. I can't remember the number of times a guest on a politics show said, it's looking bad for Labour while glazing over universally hostile front pages. Here's the Mail on Sunday. Today, Britain could have begun to heal after the end of our Brexit purgatory. There's a take on this um, in the Sunday Times talking about Labour's hypocrisy over this issue. You might not know it from reading these newspapers and lots of things saying Downing Street saying, oh, Macron, Merkel might not give us a deal, watch out. You know, they will give us an extension. A lot of the most vociferous supporters of Corbyn aren't MPs, partly because a lot of the politicians don't privately want him to become Prime Minister. Corbyn and Labour bashing today. I mean, the Daily Mail, for instance, has pictured Jeremy Corbyn, Diane Abbott and uh, John McDonnell on their front page. And you know, Lord Rothermere is a tax dodger. Well, we're, we're, we're not going personal a, slurs because obviously that's no, no. what we're talking about about people carrying no, no. out personal slurs no. let's not get into no, no. any of that no, no. I just want to no, talk no. about the a, fact that their past yeah, it's is about, being yeah. look I've done these shows before when you highlight the structural dynamic at play people look at you as if you were David Cameron on a pig farm walking around with a giant tube of Vaseline it goes beyond just paper reviews the newspapers despite dwindling readerships often set the whole news agenda for broadcast more generally from the Today program when you wake up to Newsnight when you go to bed. These shows reinforce the agenda of the print newspapers, an agenda that is peddled by billionaires. It happens across the board, but in the case of the BBC, this amounts effectively to a public subsidy for the likes of Murdoch, Rothermere and the Barclays. So even though people are buying fewer newspapers, the BBC ensure that these outlets still find a national audience for their message. So in effect, you're paying £140 a year so that billionaires can tell you what to think. The BBC is not a counterweight to media billionaire oligarchs. It's amplifying them. Whatever politics show you watch or listen to, someone from one of the media baron-owned outlets will almost always feature. to read uh, from an article about Jeff Bezos written by Emily Bell, director of the Toast Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. She wrote, quote, how will he react, especially after Amazon's recent clenching of a $600 million contract to provide cloud services to the CIA, to the flow of stories from his own publication on the NSA and its covert pact with the tech industry to trace our every move? How will he like his Amazon workplace practices, scrutinized by his own paper? How will he like being in a world where the greatest measure of success is to irritate, damage, or at best remove a president and other public officials? Interesting questions, Jeff Cohen. Oh, I think these are all good questions. I think one thing that's missing is a discussion of the hallowed traditions, the hallowed journalistic traditions of the Washington Post. I mean, any media consumer who's been looking at the bevy of articles in the last day and a half has heard about this you know, what's going to happen to the Washington Post journalistic tradition, the paper of Watergate the, or the paper that exposed Watergate and published the Pentagon Papers? Uh, I think any any serious uh, and very, uh, you know, diligent news consumer is going to realize that the incidents like Watergate conspiracy and the Pentagon Papers, that was 40 years ago. And the hallowed tradition of the Washington Post that we're worried Bezos is going to ruin and, and again, it may get worse. It may not. It most likely it'll continue. But that hallowed tradition for 40 years 
The Washington Post has really been a, a newspaper of the bipartisan consensus. And items like or invasions like Iraq could hardly have happened without the editorial pages headed by a, a sort of a hawk, uh, Fred Hyatt, who's still in power today. And Fred Hyatt's editorial pages of the Washington Post had in a five month period before the Iraq invasion, more than two dozen editorials urging on that invasion. Skeptics of the invasion were uh, mercilessly savaged in the editorial pages and the op-ed pages, but they weren't allowed to speak for themselves. And so I, when I hear people talk about the Washington Post under the Graham family, the paper of Watergate, it reminds me of people who would look at today's Barack Obama and say he's a community organizer embedded with the poor in Chicago. Uh, the Watergate Washington Post was decades ago. The, water, the Washington Post we should be thinking about in the last 10, 12 years has been a, a very important instrument of U.S. Inter intervention, imperial foreign policy at the hands of the editorial page editor, Fred Hyatt. You know, just on what you're saying, just to read part of the Washington Post editorial from February 2003 that ran the day after Colin Powell's Iraq presentation to the United Nations under the headline, Irrefutable. It read in part, It's hard to imagine how anyone could doubt that Iraq possesses weapons of mass destruction. Mr. Powell left no room to argue seriously that Iraq has accepted the Security Council's <coughs> offer of a final opportunity to disarm. The headline, again, and uh, Irrefutable. And on the Washington Post op-ed page in the next two days, every op-ed columnist from, you know, one baby step to the left of center to the far right was endorsing Colin Powell's speech and endorsing the invasion of Iraq. And that's been par for the course over there for the last 10, 20 years. Well, you also mentioned the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, of course, the most famous reporters in the history of The Washington Post, say they're optimistic about the paper sale to Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Woodward said, quote, if there's somebody who can succeed, it's Bezos. He's the innovator. He's got the money and the patience. So we'll see. I think in some ways this may be the Post's last chance to survive, at least in some form of what it was. Bernstein also said he had high hopes for Bezos, saying, he, quote, seems to me exactly the kind of inventive and innovative choice needed to bring about a recommitment to great journalism on the scale many of us have been hoping for, while employing all the applicable tools and best sensibilities of a new era and the old. Uh, Jeff Cohen, could you respond to that? Yeah, you know, he might be innovative and he does have deep pockets. And if I was a journalist at The Washington Post, I'd want someone with deep pockets as opposed to the Graham family, which has been bleeding money. But the reality is when we have, as you as you pointed out earlier, one of the big issues is the surveillance state and Amazon, the company that has made this individual so wealthy is so embedded with the surveillance state, I'd be very concerned. And as for Bob Woodward, again, 40 years ago, he unraveled a conspiracy and brought down a president. In the last 10, 12 years, he's been very, very cozy with American presidents, whether Republican or Democrat. And Bob McChesney, your, your response? 
Well, I think that the absurdity is that we're reduced to the point where uh, journalism is dying in this country as, a, as an undertaking supported by uh, commercial enterprise. And we're reduced with these monopoly franchises to hoping we get a, a good billionaire relative to the Koch brothers, for example. But we should stand back and understand how ridiculous the situation is, that we're reduced to this pathetic state of affairs, because uh, we really actually need real journalism. We need journalism that tells us about war plans, that tells us about the NSA long before uh, it becomes too late or deep into the game. And we're not getting that now, and there's no reason to think the current system is going to give us that. It's incredibly corrupt. It's worth noting that we had a system like the one we have now 100 years ago in the United States. If you were to look at American journalism in between 1900 and 1915, it had grown incredibly concentrated, except in our very largest cities. There were huge empires. And the Hearst, the Pulitzers, the Scripps, the, the bosses of that era used their power to actively and aggressively promote their politics. They were generally right-wing anti-labor politics. And it was a result of the, that period that there was a great crisis of journalism that led to the creation of professional journalism, the idea that the editorial content should not be influenced directly by the owners and the advertisers. And we're going back to that era, except we're doing it without any resources, and there's even less accountability, far less than there was then. There's, you know, In those days, there were four, five, six, eight major daily newspapers in each of our great cities like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. Today, we don't have anything like that. What we have is a plaything for these billionaires that they can then use aggressively to promote their own politics. And when we talk about promoting your own politics, we got to understand it's not like Jeff Bezos has to march into a newsroom and say, cover this, don't cover that. It rarely works that way. That happens once a decade. You basically set an organizational culture and smart journalists who want to survive internalize the values and those that don't internalize the values get out of the way. Uh, Bob, <clears throat> Bob McChesney, Coke Industries, of course, and we've been talking about this for a while, interested in acquiring uh, Tribune's big regional titles, which include Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Baltimore Sun, Orlando Sentinel. I mean, this is what you have these days. You have the Coke brothers. Uh, you also have um, Warren Buffett, right? Uh, what was it last year? Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway bought 28 daily newspapers um, for something like 340 $44 million. Um, this is how it operates in the United States right now. And, and so then compare Jeff Bezos to the Grams, who have owned this newspaper for decades. You're right. And we're looking at a situation where we have these owners who are making these investments now, like the Coke And of brothers. course, I should say and Bloomberg. A, you cannot forget our mayor in New yeah. York City, Bloomberg News, one of the world's largest news and media companies, employing 2,300 um, 2, professionals in 146 bureaus around the world. And I'm sure it employs many yeah. more people than that. In Dollarocracy, John Nichols and I outline people like the Koch brothers and Shelley Adelson and a whole host of CEOs and billionaires that most Americans don't know because they aren't seeking publicity, who are spending hundreds of tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to buy elections, oftentimes anonymously and surreptitiously uh, through dark money. Well, if you look at it closely, it makes perfect sense they'd want to start buying up newspapers as a political investment because they're so cheap now and you can dominate the discussion uh, to, to have it framed the issues your way, talk about what you think is important. Uh, it's a very wise political investment. And for 
people concerned with democratic theory, democratic governance, it's antithetical to what this country needs to be for the constitutional system to work. When the news media, the fourth estate, a pillar of our constitutional system, becomes a plaything for billionaires and there's no accountability, uh, our government, our governing system can't work effectively as something except a plaything for the rich. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombas has a lot to be proud of in how they've designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be soft, seamless, tagless, and made of super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere. Plus, They've made high-tech innovations that let them craft comfy, performance styles for every sport and activity. But the reason that I like them is that from the very beginning, they have been focused on building a business that does good. They started selling socks with a buy one, donate one model, specifically because socks were the most requested items at homeless shelters. T-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so they've expanded accordingly. And so far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. I'm not sure how much is new. I mean, th- this man's wealth obviously is on a scale that, you know, historically no other person has, has touched, uh, even comparatively, right? Um, I do think that the richest man in the world owning one of the largest social media platforms feels different than, I don't know, someone owning a newspaper in the 19th century for one reason, just because of the global implications of this. And, I think that that's a significant difference here. Obviously, we all operate in a globalized media economy in general, um, but it seems significant to me that someone with this much power and wealth is now at the helm of one of the largest global connectors. Yeah, no, I think that's important. I think that it's also reflective, you know, as has been the subtext of this whole conversation of like the concentration of wealth at the top and the increasing power of a very few number of people to control a lot of things in our lives. But one thing which I think is interesting is that, you know, we've read a few pieces of people on the ground who have worked at these news organizations before and after mm-hmm. acquisitions. And they say like, they're they're all very cautious and, you know, circumspect to not be like, pro-billionaire acquisition, but they're like, you know, if you find the right rich guy to take over your media operation, it often comes with a lot of resources. And this is actually often better than a hedge fund, which is so obsessed with like turning a profit. And they are quick to say, you know, not all rich uh, acquisitors are created equal, but that given the, um, you know, like real dire straits that newsrooms are in right now, that the right, um, person can actually be like a really necessary lifeline and can ultimately do good. It's just, 
you know, you, there's a lot of like faith being put into this one extraordinarily powerful person. But, you know, a lot of people say that, whatever you think of Amazon, but about the Washington Post, absolutely, the LA Times, you know, and I think that that is, um, that is, you know, a little depressing to think of what the options are, but also important to think about in terms of like real lived experience of the people working there in these rooms and the resources they have. Today, just hours before we taped, BuzzFeed announced that they were closing their investigative reporting uh, division, which I'm going to talk about in my What's Making History, one of their pieces. But that's that's the, what we're looking at here, right? Yeah. This morning, you know, someone was appointed to a new position at a pub we all love, and we looked at what the comp was, and it was less than all of us made writing for them years ago, like by half. Like, this is the situation. So... I don't know, like find yourself the right billionaire, I guess. Well, and that those billionaires see this as philanthropic work. They see it as um, civic giving, just like Carnegie building a library in the 19th totally. century saw it as part of, um, you know, giving back and helping to build American civic culture. And I think that this is exactly, exactly the point, right? That these media institutions, setting aside Twitter, which obviously is new, but like the, the media institutions like the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, these places, the Atlantic, the New Republic, had existed on a, a mix of ads and subscriptions for decades. And that model broke. And they're looking around and they're saying, well, how do we continue to do journalism? And so mm-hmm. far, the most sustainable answer has been we need billionaires to sweep in and take care of this. And it's interesting. I think that maybe like, is this new is probably the wrong question, but it is interesting to know what choice is embedded in that because the actor, the deep pocketed actor who does not seem to be playing a role in any of this is the government. And that is whether it's the government playing the role of regulator for social media, particularly for things like Facebook and Twitter, um, and whether or not those should be treated as um, public resources um, rather than private ones. Um, uh, The public funding of media, which is shown to um, engender more ideological diversity, um, more freedom for the people who write for them. It's The U.S. has long had um, a very pathetically funded um, public media compared to other nations. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying, it's not new, right? It's something that we saw in the Gilded Age. um, And it's something that has been true for um, most of American history. But when you have these like incredible concentrations of wealth and you have a dominant political philosophy that is opposed to government intervention and government regulation, what you end up with is billionaires who are functionally playing a role that in a democracy government should probably play. Um, I mean, see also schools. Well, yeah, I mean, but like, benevolent billionaires, I would suggest is not um, a great policy model, but it is the one that we seem to have landed on. Right. Absolutely. I also think that this space or this industry, the fact that both billionaire investors and hedge funds are involved should tell us something. I'm not exactly sure what it tells us, but it says something significant that those are the two major players here we're talking about when it comes to ownership. That's not the case when, I mean, you brought up the conceptualization or even the personal framing of themselves as philanthropists that a lot of billionaires have taken 
in this space, although I think a lot of them have said that this is a business proposition, that there are bottom line of objectives that they have of the outlets that they own and they have to meet them. And like, this is a, an open mm-hmm. purse. Some of them, though, are approaching this as a philanthropic endeavor. But the fact that journalism or media institutions are not fully in the philanthropic space right now in the way that it's just a given assumption that symphonies Mm -hmm. or that museums are, I think it speaks to the very particulars of media and of um, media outlets and institutions and where they operate in American life um, and suggests the ways in which it is different as a business than those other, you know, things are. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it's important that that we also not treat the market as a neutral operator here. It's right. quite possible right. that market forces and a healthy, small-D democratic press are not compatible, right? That the if it bleeds, it leads ethos, and the the clicks metric is not necessarily going to um, generate the most functional and useful media ecosystem. Certainly, it doesn't seem to have so far. And so, if you can't create a healthy democratic press through the market, um, then your choices are billionaires, philanthropists, or um, or the government. And not that government should control the media, but it wouldn't hurt if they uh, threw a few dollars their way. Anyway, the problem at the end of the day is capitalism. Capitalism and Elon Musk. I'm a worker in the entertainment industry. I'm a writer and a board member of the Writers Guild of America West, a labor union that represents over 11,000 writers who work in TV, film, news, and streaming video. I'm also an actor and a comedian, and I'm here today to talk to you about the most hilarious subject of all, corporate media mergers. I'm here in part because the show I created, Adam Ruins Everything, was killed by a corporate merger, specifically by AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner. Waves of merger in this industry, approved by regulators or the courts, have put a handful of companies in control of what stories writers are allowed to tell and what viewers are allowed to watch, and done tremendous harm to the everyday workers whose labor powers the entertainment industry. In 2015, I created an investigative comedy show for the cable network True TV. It ran for three seasons and 65 episodes. It was the second biggest show on the network and was described as a breakout hit by the network president. But in 2018, AT&T acquired Time Warner, True TV's parent company. And then, as so often happens after mergers, AT&T announced a major reorganization. Now, we all know that that's boss code for layoffs, but this time it was code for basically shut down the entire network. Roughly a 100 True TV employees were fired, including the head of the network and the entire programming department, and AT&T then started canceling shows to cut costs. A month after our season finale aired, I got a call from the new boss at AT&T saying that they were canceling the show despite its success. And today, what was once a thriving TV network that employed thousands of artists now airs archival reruns of a single reality show over and over again. Three years after that merger turned out to be a financial disaster, Warner Media merged again, this time with Discovery. And just yesterday, two weeks after that merger closed, that new entity announced that they were ending all scripted television production at TNT and TBS, two networks that have been leading the way in cable scripted programming for over 30 years. I received texts all day from friends whose shows had suddenly been canceled in the middle of shooting. Now, why would a healthy television network with hit shows watched in millions of households voluntarily commit suicide? 
Well, the executives of the new megacorp proudly state in the press that the only reason these cuts were made was the merger. Now, in decades past, when a show was canceled, the writer in the studio could take it to another network. And that's because until recently, the networks that broadcast the content competed to buy content from the studios. And the studios, in turn, competed for the services of writers, directors, and other artists, all to bring the best ideas to the public. But after two years of vertical and horizontal mergers today, the network that broadcasts your show also owns the studio that makes it, the IP that it's based on, and the cable infrastructure that brings it to your house. Just six, <clears throat> excuse me, just six companies now control the production and distribution of almost all entertainment content available to the American public in theaters, on TV, and on streaming services. And the impact on those of us who actually make all this content has been profound. When I created Adam Ruins Everything in 2015, we pitched it to True TV, TNT, TBS, Discovery, and HBO. But today, all those buyers have consolidated into a single entity, HBO Max. With fewer employer, with, with fewer employers competing for our labor, they can more easily hold down our wages and set onerous terms for our employment. For example, despite unprecedented growth and record profits, my union has found that median pay for TV writer producers is nearly the same as it was in the 90s, 30 years ago. And this problem affects every worker in our industry. Because the companies unilaterally control the schedules of so many movies and shows, crew members are now being forced to work longer and longer hours, sometimes working 18 hours a day, six days a week, for months on end, for very low wages. Actors find themselves trapped in exclusive contracts that prevent them from pursuing other work, even when they're not shooting. And after Disney merged with Fox, they used their market power to end back-end participation, preventing show creators and producers from sharing in the profits of the work they created. Now, the corporate lawyers will say that all of this, the layoffs, the cuts to worker pay, are good because they reduce prices for consumers. But if there's a single example of one of these media mergers reducing prices in any way, I would love to see it. In fact, a recent report by the Writers Guild lays out the truth that every media viewer already knows. Today, we pay more than ever for less choices. Finally, the economic power wielded by this tiny group of companies means that they control what we as creators are allowed to say and what messages the public has access to. My show was well known for telling the uncomfortable truth about difficult subjects, but the only time we were censored by our network was when we did an episode called Adam Ruins the Internet about monopolistic consolidation in the cable industry. And after it aired, Time Warner pulled the episode from reruns and streaming because they were worried it would anger AT&T and jeopardize the merger. And I know that my story is not the only one. Without competition, these companies have no incentive to take a chance on new stories from emerging creators. Instead, they pack their services with cheap, repetitive content based on IP they already own because there's nowhere else to go. So I, I know I'm getting the light, so I'll wrap it up. My earnest plea is that the next time our, gov our governmental agencies review a merger, they ask the question, whose voices will this merger silence? Which ideas will never reach our ears? Which, whose stories will the public never get to see? It's long past time to recognize the harm that mergers like these do to workers, to creators, and to the viewing public. Our media ecosystem and the workers who make their living within it must have fair competition to survive. America's Gilded Age in the late 19th century. It was a time of rapid economic growth, but also a period of gross materialism and blatant political corruption. The wealthy grew even wealthier, 
and look to wrestle control of every facet of human life. One of the most powerful and corrupt robber barons of the time is sitting there at the table, financier Jay Gould. Gould used every underhanded trick from bribing public officials to massively manipulating stocks. He had control over railroad lines and newspapers, and for a time, he single-handedly controlled America's telegraph wires. And with those wires, Jay Gould controlled the flow of information in this country. Fast forward to today. You could make the case we are living in a new Gilded Age, where you have people with extraordinary wealth, like Elon Musk, as Axios points out, looking to follow in the footsteps of people like Gould. And they want to control everything from the courts to politicians to the leading forums for information sharing. And today it became official. Twitter accepted Musk's $44 billion offer to buy the company and put control of this dominant social media platform into his hands. It is not enough for the richest man in the world to try to replace agencies like NASA and send people to near space. He also wants to control what he calls the town square. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Now, Elon Musk will own the town square. With me now, Anand Girdadas, publisher of The Inc. and author of Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world. So, uh, Anand, my friend, what does it mean for Elon Musk to privately own the town square? It's such a good analogy, and I love that setup, except I would make one disanalogy from the period you talked about. Those people 100 years ago did not own portals into a billion people's minds in real time, right? The nature of the technology mm. is now such that if you are now Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or others, it is not just owning a newspaper or owning the rail and owning the railroads and owning this and that. It is specifically this particular kind of straw into the live consciousness of a very large chunk of humanity at all times. There's studies that have been shown that this power can be used to tilt elections if someone mm -hmm. were to want to use it that way. Um, and so what you're seeing right now, and I called it winners take all for a reason. This is the winners take all playbook. First, yeah. you just try to make money. That's the kind of foundational uh, overriding goal. But if you just do that, you're going to have regulatory pressure. You're going to have people mad at you after a certain point. You can have all kinds of problems. And so what you do is you take the spoils of that money making and you buy political influence in Washington, you fund super PACs, you fund things like the Federalist Society, different approaches that you know well. And then uh, you start investing in rigging the discourse. It's not enough to just rig law and policy. You want to rig the discourse. You want to make sure you control the terms on which people can talk back at you. Uh, right. I'm curious what the safeguards are at Twitter after this acquisition. Do, do people get to read the DMs of the huh. leading dissidents and journalists and regulators in the world. Uh, I have DM'd over the years with people who work in governments, uh, mm -hmm. people who's, you know, who have critical uh, positions relative to all kinds of authority. I'm curious, what are the safeguards preventing the world's richest man? I'm sure there are some. I'd love to hear what they are. But this is truly the winners take all world where not just, as you said, not just one form of power, but every mm -hmm. form of power is used to purchase the next and uh, up to the point where we are fully encircled and democracy itself is suffocated.
And, and, you know, I would not I would doubt that there would be very many safeguards. I mean, Elon Musk calls himself a, a free speech absolutist. Well, first of all, that's BS, because he has a long history of literally threatening to sue bloggers who say things he doesn't like about him or who post things about Tesla that he doesn't like. His history is that it's free speech. Sure. But don't say anything about me. I don't like because I will sue you. He also, I think, is showing I think it's a tell. And I don't know if you agree with this. The right has made multiple attempts to remake Twitter. They've had Getter, which I'm sorry, it does sound like a porn name. They've had Parler. They've had Gab, which is full of Nazis. They've had all, and it never works because the thing is they don't want to talk to each other. They want to talk to us. They want to talk to the culture. They want to, they, they, if they were where black Twitter was not, they would be sad because they couldn't attack black people. Elon Musk tweeted today, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Charles Blow had already beaten him to the door and said, I'm done. Lots of people were trying to get on counter social today because counter social is actually moderated. It doesn't allow people to attack people. Do you see this as a tell that they can't recreate Twitter because Twitter without us, without the regular people, isn't useful or entertaining to them? I think that's very true. And I I also think this free speech issue needs to be unpacked because like a lot of issues promoted by people like this, the actual thing they're saying is not the actual issue. Um, So the actual issue, I think there is a feeling that people like Elon Musk propagate and certainly widespread on the fascist right today, that this is a time of censorship and control and suppression of ideas on the right by these social platforms and other institutions. Well, what's actually been going on is that there have been modest, pretty inadequate, modest, uh, slight efforts by some of these platforms to solve an actual free speech issue, which is that so many human beings feeling so unsafe and being so unsafe when they use these platforms, being bullied, being harassed, mm-hmm. being brigaded, being doxxed for the crime of being female or of color or both, yep. that you were actually drastically limiting the amount of speech out there because people just don't want to play in that kind of sandbox. And yep. these platforms have understood that and have made faint, modest efforts mm. to address that by saying, let's not have as much Nazism right. on the platform. Let's not have as much misogyny and bullying. Let's still have a lot of it, but but less. Anyone's ever actually f- reported a tweet knows that it almost never still is shut down, but they've yeah. tried. And this is what's called censorship. Uh, Elon Musk lives in a world in which the only kind of free speech is white men feeling mm-hmm. free mm-hmm. to say whatever the hell they want. And what he doesn't understand, what a lot of those folks don't understand is Speech is actually freer when everybody, everybody not only has the opportunity to have an account and able to afford a phone to be able to tweet, but can feel safe, uh, can know that they're not going to get harassed, can know that they're not going to get outed, can know they're not going to get piled on by the kind of astroturfed uh, stands of some very rich man. Uh, And this future in which there would actually be more abundant and equitable speech terrifies the crap out of people like Elon Musk. Indeed. I mean, there was a time when anybody who was Jewish on Twitter, if you expressed views that were anywhere to the left of Donald Trump, you would get the into the oven response almost immediately. And these people literally follow you so that 10 seconds after you tweet anything, you get the monkey attacks and you're it's, it's a constant assault. And without the ability to assault, they're not entertained. 
They're not entertained. And so they want to abuse. And in their mind, that's free speech. We've just heard clips today starting with an Endeavor documentary explaining how bias in media is often market-driven rather than ideological. Novara Media discussed media ownership in the UK. Democracy Now! in 2013 discussed the purchase of the Washington Post by Jeff Bezos. Past Present explained the billionaire's business model of media. Adam Conover, in his comments to the FTC and DOJ, explained how media mergers squash voices and stories that threaten corporations. And the readout spoke with Anand Gerardadas about why free speech absolutism results in less free speech. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from KERA's Think describing William Randolph Hearst's early media innovations and how he used it to push his politics. He created the first all newsreel theater that would basically show newsreels every few hours right out of the lab. You know, the film print was probably still wet before it got to the projector. In a way, it was a a precursor of CNN. It was the first all news entity uh, ever created in America. And he realized that these moving pictures could also be a tool along with the papers for advancing his kind of geopolitical agendas. And What Next, TBD, discussed the problems of the digital public square. The government can't kick you out of a park because it doesn't like you know, what you're saying. And that was the body of law that we used, that the Knight Institute used when we sued President Trump over his practice of blocking people from his Twitter account. We pointed to that body of law and said, for the same reasons the government can't kick you out of a park because it doesn't like what you're saying. President Trump can't kick you off his Twitter account because he doesn't like uh, what you're saying. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now today, I just have some more thoughts on something that is it's slightly related to media ownership or more specifically how we are continually, constantly, forever, figuring out how to communicate with each other, both logistically and just linguistically. So I saw a question asked on Twitter recently, and to be clear, it was not a good question, but it struck me as the kind of question that has the potential to confuse people who haven't necessarily thought about these issues very deeply. And I mean, in fact, I sort of got the sense that the person asking the question is probably themselves confused rather than trying to be intentionally misleading. But it led me to some interesting thoughts that I thought were worth clarifying. So here's what the person said on Twitter in response to a discussion about intentionally misgendering a person. This person says, quote, The question they never seem to be willing or able to answer is who gets to be the arbiter of what is good speech and bad, and how do you ensure that they are going to be even-handed and unbiased? End quote. 
So this is clearly a person who is skeptical of changing language and all of that sort of stuff. So as I said, I don't think it's a good question, but I find it interesting because I think it is a well-crafted misdirection of a question. It's sort of a straw man argument, but it's phrased as a question, which makes it sound like not an argument at all. It's just a person asking what sounds like a reasonable question. And I find this to be a really important form of propaganda to understand. So much so, in fact, that I actually co-wrote an explainer song about it, believe it or not. Questions can be you to get to the truth, just as Socrates. But when the questions come out because you want to sow doubt, that's just an attempt to mislead. Your question can be there to plant a seed of some idea in our minds. Or to make a stop and turn our minds off like the answer's too hard to find. So instead of just declaring it as propaganda, let's actually discuss and figure out what's happened here and, and why I think this is an argument disguised as an innocuous question. The discussion is about how society collectively decides what is appropriate and inappropriate speech, good and bad speech. This is a phenomenon that goes back to the very beginning of human communication, and it sits right at the intersection of language and cultural norms. Cultural norms kind of just being another word for politeness. I mean, I think the definition of politeness is essentially conforming to cultural norms. If you don't conform to the norms, depending on the circumstance, it could be said that you are being rude. None of this has to do with laws or litigation or arbitration or anything like that. It's just about cultural norms. And if you think back for just a second, you would know that laws or official arbiters have almost never been the cause of language change over time. It's something that happens evolutionarily more than legislatively. Someone says something new, and if it catches on, then it can spread to the whole society. And if it doesn't catch on, then it simply dies away. And that's how language evolves. But let's look at arbitration and what it's for for a second. It's for when there's a conflict that needs to be solved. And it's fair to say that there is a conflict over language right now. So to jump to the idea that what we need is an arbiter to help solve our conflict sounds super reasonable. And the question posed asks for an even-handed and unbiased arbiter. So what could possibly be more reasonable than that? The problem is that the question is built on an entirely faulty premise. That's just not how language changes. There was no arbiter who decreed that we would collectively switch from colored to Negro to black to African American, then realizing that not all black people identify as coming from Africa, back to black. And then more inclusively, there's a push for people of color, POC, and now the even more inclusive BIPOC, which includes black, indigenous, and all other people of color, which is approximately where we are now. And if you think it's going to stop there, I've got bad news for you. So government, legislation, rulemaking, those entities don't lead the way on this. They follow the social norms that bubble up organically, evolutionarily, 
from the bottom up. For instance, the most recent example I saw was that the AP style guide changed to use the term pregnant people to make it gender neutral. If you have no idea what's going on, that sounds like the AP is making a big, bold decision to try to change our language for the sake of trans inclusivity. But I first heard that type of phrasing almost 10 years ago. And that's just when I heard it. It had obviously been around longer than that in some circles. So the AP isn't going out on a huge limb here demanding change. They're reacting to the change that was already happening and has been happening for years and years and years to get us to this point. So if I were going to speak directly to this person who said, the question they never seem to be willing or able to answer is who gets to be the arbiter to what is good speech and bad, and how do you ensure that they are going to be even-handed and unbiased? This is what I would say. You are right that no one is able to answer your question, but that doesn't show a lack of information on their part or expose a fatal flaw in their logic. It's an unanswerable question because there's a fatal flaw in the logic of the question itself. You're putting forward a premise that makes no sense, official arbitration of language. It doesn't work that way, and yet that is what you are building your argument on top of. So for anyone to take the time to answer your silly question, they would have to take as much time as I am taking, and they are certainly not going to do that on Twitter. To take this further, though, what I think goes unstated in that question what I think the real argument is, and I could be wrong because now I'm reading between the lines a bit, but here's what I think this person is really arguing. I think they are saying something like, if there is not an officially sanctioned, even-handed, and unbiased arbiter in place to tell me and everyone else what is good and bad speech, then three things become true. Number one, there is no legitimate idea of good and bad speech because no official definition of such has been handed down by a recognized authority figure. And two, no other individual in the world, not having been appointed as an official authority, has any legitimate standing to claim that one way of speaking is superior or preferable to any other. Therefore, three, I get to talk however I want, and no one can ever tell me I'm wrong in a way that I will deem legitimate. That's the basic argument I think is being made, disguised as an innocuous question. And is so often the case, there are a lot of logically consistent connections being made in that argument. It's just that the whole thing is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how the forces behind language change work. So... Other than that one thing that entirely undermines your entire premise, it makes perfect sense. So for everyone, when you hear a question or ask a question in political conversations, make sure that you understand the assumptions that are built in and that those assumptions are legitimate because you're not going to want to get distracted by or ask questions that have illegitimate assumptions built into them. They need to be avoided at all costs, but they are a great way to trick someone into having a conversation that sounds legitimate, sounds like it's making a good and reasonable point, 
but is actually built on a foundation of sand. And this can be tricky because not all these questions with faulty assumptions built into them are as obvious as the most famous example, when did you stop beating your wife? But even though they're not as obviously biased as that question is, they all lead to the same no-win scenario conversation. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And as always, of course, everyone should be joining up with us on our Best of Left Discord community, where we discuss all kinds of things. And in particular, I am soliciting interesting stuff. You can submit these things through the Discord community or tweet at me, send me an email, leave a voicemail, whatever you like. I'm always interested in hearing fascinating recommendations from people. So please keep those coming in. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.